The reading, the reading today is from Exodus chapter 2, the birth of Moses. Now a man of the tribe of Levi married a Levite woman, and she became pregnant and gave birth to a son. When she saw that he was a fine child, she hid him for three months. But when she could hide him no longer, she got a papyrus basket for him and coated it with tar and pitch. Then she placed the child in it and put it among the reeds along the bank of the Nile. His sister stood at a distance to see what would happen to him. Then Pharaoh's daughter went down to the Nile to bathe, and her attendants were walking along the river bank. She saw the basket among the reeds and sent her female slave to get it. She opened it and saw the baby. He was crying, and she felt sorry for him. This is one of the Hebrew babies, she said. Then his sister asked Pharaoh's daughter, Shall I go and get one of the Hebrew women to nurse the baby for you? Yes, go, she answered. So the girl went and got the baby's mother. Pharaoh's daughter said to her, Take this baby and nurse him for me, and I will pay you. So the woman took the baby and nursed him. And when the child grew older, she took him to Pharaoh's daughter, and he became her son. She named him Moses, saying, I drew him out of the water. One day, after Moses had grown up, he went out to where his own people were and watched them at their hard labor. He saw an Egyptian beating a Hebrew, one of his own people. Looking this way and that and seeing no one, he killed the Egyptian and hid him in the sand. The next day, he went out and saw two Hebrews fighting. He asked the one in the wrong, Why are you hitting your fellow Hebrew? And the man said, Who made you ruler and judge over us? Are you thinking of killing me as you killed the Egyptian? Then Moses was afraid and thought, What I did must have become known. When Pharaoh heard of this, he tried to kill Moses. But Moses fled from Pharaoh and went to live in Midian, where he sat down by a well. Now a priest of Midian had seven daughters, and they came to draw water and fill the troughs of uh, the troughs to water their father's flock. Some shepherds came along and drove them away, but Moses got up and came to their rescue and watered the flock. When the children returned to rule their father, he asked them, Why have you returned so early today? They answered, An Egyptian rescued us from the shepherds. He even drew water for us and watered the flock. Where is he? Rule asked his daughter. Why did you leave him? Invite him to have something to eat. Moses agreed to stay with the man who gave his daughter Zipporah to to Moses in marriage. Zipporah gave birth to a son, and Moses named him Gershom, saying, I have become a foreigner in a foreign land. During that long period, the king of Egypt died. The Israelites groaned in their slavery and cried out, and their cry for help because of their slavery went up to God. God heard their groaning, and he remembered his covenant with Abraham, with Isaac, and with Jacob. So God looked on the Israelites and was concerned about them. This is God's word. Thanks, Patty. Um, We have started a new series uh, through Book of Exodus. Um, So if you can have chapter 2 open as we go through it, that'd be great. Um, But let's pray that God will speak to us through this passage. Lord, we give you great praise and thanks for these things um, not only happened, but they're recorded for our benefit. And we pray that these written words will become living words as we hear them. In Jesus' name, amen. If you're here last week, um, you 
heard about the most powerful man on earth, um, how he was repeatedly frustrated by the most powerful God. When Pharaoh put slaves, uh, slave masters on the Israelites, they multiplied in number. When he ordered the Hebrew midwives to kill the boys, they disobeyed and became the means by which the Israelites actually grew in number. They, the number kept on multiplying. And so at the end of chapter 1, Pharaoh says, throw in all the boys, the newborn boys, into the River Nile. Well, as we start this chapter, we know that that won't stop God, will it? The Levitical couple gives birth to a fine child, as uh, it says in verse 2, and hides him for three months. And think about that. They hid this newborn baby for three months. Do you think you could do that with a newborn baby from your neighbors? What if you would, what would you do when they start, uh, when he starts to cry? And when she could hide him no longer. This mother then made a basket for him, uh, coated it with tar and pitch, and floated it down the river. And the thing is, it safely goes down the river, doesn't it? Which is a miracle in and of itself. But there's more. It reaches Pharaoh's daughter, who was bathing at that precise moment. Even though she knows that this is a Hebrew boy and knows uh, her father's orders to kill all the Hebrew boys, when she sees him, she's filled with compassion, verse 6, and she decides to keep him. Do you think that was a coincidence? When Miriam, Moses' sister, who had been watching all along, comes along and says, actually, she can find the Hebrew woman to nurse the baby for her, this princess says in verse 9, take this baby and nurse him for me, and I will pay you. This is what happens. None of this is a coincidence. This is how God had arranged it. And, and this is uh, the, the upshot, the, the result of what happens. Moses, who should have been killed at birth, one who will defy Pharaoh and Egypt, well, he's going to be raised in the most formative years by his own mother, and the mother will actually get paid to do so by Pharaoh who ordered his death. And not only that, he's going to get a free education and enjoy all the privileges that comes with being in the Egyptian court, and he's going to grow up as a leader. You might not have heard, heard of Abu Hamza, but he's the infamous uh, Egyptian cleric who was the imam, imam of a mosque in London. In 2006, the British court found him guilty, and the U.S. extradited him, and he's serving a life sentence there. But back in 2012, the Daily Mail article ran um, that talked about how this Hamza guy received so much welfare benefit from the British government. At one point, 650 pounds per week uh, for his housing, and he apparently lived in a house that cost about 600,000 pounds. And the, the, um, the paper concludes, the Taxpayers Alliance estimates Hamza has cost Britain at least $2.7 million in welfare payment, council housing, and legal costs. $2.7 million. But I wonder how much the Egypt, it cost the Egyptian government to raise Moses up. Moses, who would eventually lead the, the uprising of Israelites out of Egypt. And that is what happened. Isn't it? Pharaoh plans, but he is powerless in front of God. He's so powerless that his actions unwittingly contribute to carrying out God's plan. 
He's so powerless in front of God that his will is frustrated by two helpless women, two midwives in chapter 1. And in, in, in this chapter, in chapter 2, verses uh, 1 through 10, the, all the characters, are na- uh, characters that are there are women, aren't they? The, uh, the, uh, the mother of Moses and Miriam and the Pharaoh's uh, daughter. His will is frustrated by these women. And women, he didn't think, um, could do much harm. Because remember, he only ordered the death of the boys because he thought that women were were harmless behind this is all god and this point is made even more subtly um, one more way the, the the basket if you look down the basket uh in verse three and five it's literally actually not just a basket it's an ark it's an ark the same word used for noah's ark the narrator t- is telling us it was God who saved Moses just as he, he had saved Noah in the previous chapters. And we see God's hand in the rest of the chapter, too, because of what God did. Moses was able to be raised in his most formative years by his parents, right, where his ethnic and cultic identity was formed. And that, I'm sure, was indispensable for him. But not only that. He then went on to live uh, with uh, the Egyptian, Egyptian in the, in the Egyptian courts, receiving the finest education that the ancient world had to offer. He was raised to be a leader. Even when he's driven out of Egypt and becomes a shepherd in the desert, well, that too was God's plan. He spent 40 years learning the landscape how to survive in the desert, how to find water, how to lead a flock of sheep which will all be useful when he leads an unruly flock of Israelites out into the very land that he spent 40 years. Even the way that he meets his wife, actually, is reminiscent of God's action, right? Remember Jacob? Jacob met uh, his wife, uh, Rachel, by the well. Isaac meets Rebekah by the well. And it's almost as if God's saying, I am with you. You are one of Abraham and Jacob and Isaac. And he meets his wife by the well. What the narrator is telling us is that uh, through these two chapters, chapter 1 and chapter 2, the narrator is telling us that God's will can never be thwarted. No matter what people do, no matter who opposes him, no matter what kind of failures um, they might face, actually, God's will can never be uh, um, contradicted or overthrown. It's always accomplished. And here's the thing. What is true for the Jews in, in this story is true for us as well. After all, God's either in control or he's not. God's either sovereign or his will is constantly overthrown by his subjects. He is sovereign. And I hope this will bring comfort to some of you today. I don't know what kind of things people are going through, but God's working out his will for you in that situation. You might not like that in the moment. You might not even like that you are in that situation, but God is working out his sovereign plan in and through you. You know, Moses also had to spend 40 years in in Midian. He had to spend his years separated from his family, but God was preparing him for the future, and he's doing that in our lives as well. 
His plan is being carried out. And this also means that nothing can overcome, I mean, nothing can thwart um, God's, uh, God's plan. Nothing, you know, we often think our past sins, things that really that you are ashamed of, maybe that you think that disqualifies you from being used by God. Maybe you've made some mistakes in the past, took wrong paths, and you think, well, I cannot be used by God. Maybe your children, you think, well, my children are not getting the best grades. They're not going to get into the best school. And you think, well, they can't be used by God. Well, that is not true. They cannot be on the way of God's plan for us. In fact, God will use all these things our past sins, our past mistakes, even our bad grades, our experiences, all of that will contribute to accomplishing God's will for us and in us. In fact, God will use all these things to make you more like Jesus Christ, a person who knows him more and lives for him fully. We often think too much of our plans and of ourselves, but we aren't bigger than God, and God's will is always, always accomplished. So be faithful. No matter what your situation is now, be faithful to him now. Learn from your sins. Learn from your mistakes. Learn from your suffering and see what God has been teaching you. And go and serve him, no matter what the situation you are in now. That is God's will. And he will bring good for you and in and through you, through them all. But we do easily forget this because I think, because God seems so far away, because God sometimes seems absent. We can't see God um, right now. In fact, if you look at past chapter 1 and 2, what I think is so surprising about these chapters is that God is not mentioned really much at all. Is he? In chapter 1, it's only Shifra and Pua, the, the midwives who mention God, that they fear God. And here in chapter 2, God only appears at the very end of the chapter in verse 23. Throughout this entire narrative, God seems absent. And God must have felt absent to Moses, especially in Midian. And you can sense Moses' sort of internal groaning, sort of this frustration, can't you, as he gives birth um, to his son, and he names him, in verse 22, Gershom, evicted or exiled there. He says, I have become a foreigner in a foreign land. He felt far away from God's plan, far away from God, far away from the promised land, far away even from his family in Egypt, far away from what he thought was God's plan. Where is God? He might have wondered, I'm a foreigner in a foreign land. The Jewish people must surely have felt that way as well. God's absence as well. In verse 23, that talks about that long period. The Israelites groaned in their slavery, and they cried out. And we know that they cried out for over 400 years. They suffered as slaves. There was no Torah. There was no Bible back then. All they had was oral tradition, this uh, verbal uh, tradition uh, that was passed out, passed down throughout the generations, and this rumor that God made this promise to their great, 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 great grandfather Abraham that they would become a great nation. 
430 years back. And 430 years back from today, 2017, is 1587. You know, if that was what you heard, you thought that that was the promise, would you have believed it? Would you have believed in Yahweh God? You know, I think they had forgotten. So when they groaned and they cried out, it doesn't actually say that they cried out to God. It doesn't even say, uh, it doesn't say that they cried out to Yahweh God. We're not told to whom they cried. They groaned and they cried. But take a look at verse 24. Their cries reach God. God heard their groaning and he remembered his covenant with Abraham with Isaac and with Jacob. So God looked on the Israelites and was concerned about them. Once again, what was that covenant? That was made 430 years ago and the promise that Abraham would become a great nation, that he would be a blessing, that his descendants would be as numerous as the stars, um, and that they would inherit the land of Canaan. And also this, He also says in chapter 15 to Abraham, and know for certain that for 400 years your descendants will be strangers in a country not their own and that they will be enslaved and mistreated there, but I will punish the nation they serve as slaves and afterwards they will come out with great possessions. Even as Israelites might have forgotten, God remembered. God remembered his covenant in fact, we know that it wasn't only then that God acted. It wasn't as if, as if God was just reacting to their cries and groaning. We saw in chapters 1 and 2 how God was, in, in, uh, God was uh, fulfilling his plan, how um, the, the, the nation kept on multiplying despite what uh, Pharaoh did. We saw in Genesis how God, brought, God saved God's people right, through the famine, through Jacob, and then brought them into Egypt. This was all a part of God's plan. God didn't forget, did he? And here we're told that God does four things. That God hears and remembers, looks, and knows. We are under a different covenant through Christ, but God's promised to be with us. God's promised that we are his, that he's working out his goodness, uh, working, out, uh, good, working out good in us and making us more like Christ. The promise that God's kingdom is coming and will come is actually our pro- the same promises that we can hold on to. So as God heard their cries, he hears our cries. When we pray in the middle of the night in silence, even as we groan, God hears. And God remembers. Once again, it's not that God had forgotten. Biblically speaking, it's the kind of remembering that leads to action. Right? If you remember that it's your um, anniversary, then you act. <laughs> you buy a card and you book a restaurant. This is what you do. God is acting on the promise that he's made. He looks at us too. Even when you think no one is looking, God is looking at you. And he knows us. Those words that NIV translates as God's concerned. That's a simple word to know. We often say, I've heard this just this past week, no one knows what I am going through. No one knows 
possibly what we could have gone through. Well, that's true of us, but it's not true of God. God knows. And our situation, us and our situation, better than we know it ourselves. But here's the point. God will sometimes seem absent. Not in the picture at all. But remember, chapters 1 and 2, that doesn't mention God at all, is happening simultaneously as verses 23 and 25. God hearing and remembering, looking, and knowing. So don't be discouraged. Take Micah. Uh, Micah, who knew? <laughs> you know, if God didn't tell us to each one of us that God was listening, but we knew that God was listening, right? As, in, as we look back, we know that God was listening. He was. Um, now we see it more clearly. How? He had this initial scan um, a couple weeks back, one week back um, before the scheduled birth, right? And that was slightly random, but that was when his defect was found. And how I think God was, God was there listening to our prayers, um, how he made the doctor not give up in the initial surgery. That went on forever. The doctor came out and told them that this is, they almost gave up in the middle. And God was there, um, uh, arranging um, the, the Australian doctor to come, uh, even though so immediately, even though it should have taken weeks and months, God was there sustaining him in those critical hours. God was listening, God knew, God was remembering, and God was acting. God was, um, uh, God was there. Point is, sometimes it doesn't seem like it. Sometimes we won't, uh, we won't uh, feel like it. But Israelites also spent 400 years in the in Egypt, and much of it in slavery. Moses spent 40 years in the desert. But whenever we're tempted to think that God is not listening, that God is absent, remember Moses. Remember Moses. <laughs> remember how God was right there, accomplishing His plans. He hears. He remembers, and he looks, and he knows. And because he remembered, God raised up Moses as the deliverer, as the rescuer, the savior. But the path wasn't smooth. Moses seemed to be in prime position to be the leader of his people. He received the finest education. He learned the language of the Egyptians and the politics. He, made, he formed connections. He was in position of power. But when he does something for the Jews, he's rejected by them. Right? Surely. Sure, he got away actually killing an Egyptian who was beating a Hebrew slave, verse 12. But when he tried to stop two Jewish men fighting, they talked back. This is what they say in verse 14. Who made you ruler and judge over us? Are you thinking of killing me as you killed the Egyptian? That must have taken him by surprise, don't you think? Must, Moses must have thought that the Israelites would naturally look up to him, especially after he took their side. He's only looking up for their interest. Why would they reject him? Stephen, the first martyr in the New Testament, recalls this story in this way in Acts chapter 7, 5. 
He supposed that his brothers would understand that God was giving them salvation by his hand, but they did not understand. What a telling statement that is. Moses presumed that God would use him to rescue the Israelites uh, and that the Israelites would go along with that. They would understand that, but they did not. Why not? Instead, they asked, who made you ruler and judge over us? Well, the answer to that question is no one. No one yet. Moses thought that it was him. He was destined to become that leader, and he acted on it, and when he did, he was rejected. God had not called him yet. Here's the thing. Moses, with all the right credentials, education, connection, and power, couldn't actually be the savior of Israelites. Because Egypt was much, much bigger than him. He couldn't have done it on his own because the problem was much bigger than him. God wanted to say only he could deliver the Israelites. Only Yahweh could save. He will save Moses. I mean, he will use Moses. But he will also use his mighty power, the plagues, the flies and toads, boils and locusts, all those those things. God will deliver the Israelites with the mighty power of his hand. So Moses was sent out to the wilderness. But we do see uh, one thing that I think God looks for in his people, the right heart. And we see that most clearly in verse 11. One day after Moses had grown up, he went out to where his people were and watched them at their hard labor. Even though he grew up in the lap of luxury, he went out to be with his own people. Even though he could easily have sided with the slave masters, he decided to side with the oppressed, with the slaves. Even though he was educated to be the prince, he sided with the slaves. This is how the writer of Hebrews put it in chapter 11, Hebrews eleven twenty four to 26. By faith, Moses, when he had grown up, refused to be known as the son of Pharaoh's daughter. He chose to be mistreated along with the people of God rather than to enjoy the fleeting pleasures of sin. He regarded disgrace for the sake of Christ as a greater value than the treasures of Egypt because he was looking ahead to his reward. But as great as Moses is, we know a greater prince, prince of heaven. Prince of heaven not just looked at us with pity, but he came to be one of us, slave. Jesus emptied himself to be with us, to rescue us. Moses would save his people by displaying God's mighty power. Christ Almighty would become the Lamb of God who's led to slaughter. The salvation that he achieved was even much, much greater than the problem, the exodus out of Egypt. It was a problem of sin and death. No one, no one could survive death on their own. No one could pay for their sins on their own. This is not a problem any man could solve. So God sent his son to be slaughtered for us. So as we end, as as you look to Moses, see God's hand at work around you. 
around the world. Whether you are at the top of the world or at the bottom, trust him that he is right there working out his good plan for you and for the world. And when God seems absent, look to Moses and the story and be assured that God is there. And once again, as you see Moses, remember that Moses is just a faint pointer to who Jesus is. The salvation out of Egypt, just a faint point to the great salvation that we have received. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you that your ways are indeed beyond our ways, that your thoughts greater than our thoughts. We thank you for the revelation of the scripture that points to the greatness of who you are. Help us always to trust you. Help us to understand that we are dearly loved, the people of God, that, that, that you are indeed working out your plan in and through us in this world. Help us to trust you when you seem absent. And help us to trust in that greatness of salvation. In Jesus' name, amen.